Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This was almost the perfect murder. Introducing a new podcast from Court TV. They were killed by their own children. Murder and the Menendez brothers. I just started firing. What was in front of you? My parents. Oh, that is on tape. <laughs> Murder and the Menendez brothers, a Court TV mystery. Available now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is another installment in our ongoing series, Six Degrees of Song of the South. So far in this series, we've attempted to explain why Song of the South exists why the most prominent Black actress of her generation took a minor role in it, how the film was influenced by minstrel culture, and how one white communist tried and failed to protect the film from the ahistorical impulses of the big capitalist behind the scenes. Today, we're going to begin to wrap up the series by discussing Song of the South's shocking afterlife. How did a movie that felt troublingly dated to some viewers in 1946 find renewed life in four re-releases over the course of 40 years, to the point that it was more commercially successful in 1972, 1980, and 1986 than it had been when it was first made in 1946? The answer to that question lies in the convergence of a number of complicated political and cultural factors. The same factors which, not coincidentally, led around the time of Song of the South's most successful re-release to the rise of Hollywood's first sustained, high-profile, commercially-minded wave of films starring Black casts and made for Black audiences, although not always by Black filmmakers. Join us, won't you, as we explore Song of the South's rebirth amidst Black exploitation and the white backlash. 
Song of the South was not released between 1946 and 1956. In the interim between the film's first two theatrical releases, Hollywood made some strides in opening doors for African-American stars. In our last season, we talked about Dorothy Dandridge, who advanced further within the white power structure of stardom than any Black actress before her, in that she was nominated for a Best Actress Oscar. But her opportunities were still limited by both racism and sexism. More strides were made by Dandridge's co-star in the 1959 musical film Porgy and Bess. Sidney Poitier, who made his Hollywood debut in 1950 playing a doctor in No Way Out, and in 1964 would become the first Black performer to win the Academy Award for Best Actor. In 1952, as Poitier was emerging as a new type of Black movie star, Ebony Magazine published an essay called Educating Our Whites, calling for the quote-unquote new Negro to disabuse white people of their old-fashioned stereotypes. In this essay, Ebony returned to the problematic nature of Song of the South. Uncle Tom figures like Uncle Remus are still accepted as true portraits of the Negro, Ebony stated, because they, quote, confirm white folks' fixed ideas about Negroes, it is hard for whites to understand why African Americans want civil rights and equalities, why they should make themselves unhappy by desiring things they never had. In other words, in a time when more progressive film roles looked like they were starting to appear, Ebony feared that white folks' fixed ideas might prove more powerful and resilient than the new images being put forth. This fear turned out to be justified, but it would be 20 years before the extent of the problem really became evident. Before Song of the South returned to movie screens for the first time in 1956, it was omnipresent in other forms. During that decade, Disney produced an Uncle Remus comic strip, as well as several Brer Animal children's books, and they recycled the Oscar-winning song Zippity-Doo-Dah frequently, often in contexts that divorced it from its problematic source, such as having Donald Duck sing it in the short cartoon Soup's On in 1948. Disney moved into television in a big way in the 1950s, with the programs Disneyland, which predated the theme parks, and The Wonderful World of Disney. These shows became a hub for the company to turn the promotion of old products into new content. The very first episode of the Disneyland show included a lengthy clip from Song of the South, featuring Br'er Rabbit. Though the clip included a small live-action setup, including Johnny and Uncle Remus, it was mostly the cartoon divorced from the context of the movie. Two years later, 
an entire episode of the show Disneyland was devoted to Joel Chandler Harris, as filtered through the Disney sensibility. This episode included clips from Song of the South, as well as a newly produced live-action dramatization of Harris's life, featuring Hattie McDaniel's brother, Sam, as a servant who tells Harris the Uncle Remus stories. This episode was meant to spark a new generation's curiosity about the Disney version of Uncle Remus, in advance of Song of the South's first theatrical re-release. It also attempted to legitimize Disney's highly fictionalized, partly animated film within a historical context, which purported to be factual, but was itself distorted and fictionalized. This faux documentary on the origins of Uncle Remus may have softened the market for the re-release of the movie. In any case, in its first return to the big screen, it inspired little critical commentary. A short item in the LA Times on March 19, 1956, announcing the film's local re-release, did not mention race at all. But America was about to change again. Song of the South became as culturally scarce as it ever would be during the late 1950s and 1960s, as Jim Crow laws broke down and activists from Martin Luther King to the Black Panthers made a major cultural and political impact. Essentially, Disney avoided re-releasing Song of the South during the peak of the civil rights movement, when organizations like the NAACP kept steady pressure on the film industry to do better, both in terms of on-screen representation and behind-the-scenes hiring. It was in this period that Poitiers stardom flourished. In 1967, Poitiers starred in three blockbusters. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and To Sir With Love were amongst the top 10 highest grocers of the year. And In the Heat of the Night won the Oscar for Best Picture, up against competition including The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. This was the peak of Poitiers' career as a Hollywood star. His asking price went up to three-quarters of a million per picture, but he'd never again star in even one of the ten highest-grossing films of the year. Poitiers' stardom was controversial, because though he was able to break out of the stereotypical roles that Black performers had been confined to a generation previous— His roles, taken together, essentially created a new stereotype. By the late 1960s, when the civil rights movement seemed to be hitting a wall, with years of protest and rebellion failing to bring on significant widespread change, Black audiences rejected the image Poitiers projected of a kind of perfect unicorn, largely sexless and always upstanding and morally above reproach, in films that depicted him as the one exceptional black person allowed into otherwise white spaces. Poitiers' triumphs against racists in his films were highly individualized. They didn't speak to the mundane experiences of the masses of black Americans 
and usually spoke more to how white people could learn to live and work with perfect specimens of black manhood than they spoke to actual real-life black people and their problems, in the sense that they mostly seemed to exist to help white characters solve their own problems. Some critics felt Poitier's doctor, cop, and teacher characters weren't much better than Uncle Remus. In an essay published in the New York Times in August 1969, writer Larry Neal even used the story of Br'er Rabbit's encounter with the Tar Baby as a metaphor for Poitiers' predicament as Hollywood's great black hope. By this time, with the killings of black leaders like King and Fred Hampton, the civil rights movement lost some momentum. A white backlash to the chaos and uncertainty of the 1960s didn't help. Taking from a playbook that reads a lot like Trump's dog whistle faux populism, Richard Nixon and his fellow Republicans played on the resentment of working-class whites who believed that African Americans had been given too much already. This was called the Southern Strategy, and it successfully lured rural whites, who had previously voted for Democrats, to an increasingly right-wing Republican Party. Though Woodstock and other markers of the hippie dream of the 1960s were still to come, after Ronald Reagan's election as the governor of California and Nixon's victory in the 1968 presidential election, it became impossible to ignore the country's pendulum swing to the right. Of course, a company like Disney took inventory in an attempt to figure out how to profit off of the changing political feeling. When it was actually produced in 1946, Disney was still a fledgling startup, and Song of the South was a gamble that failed to turn around the studio's generally dismal financial picture. But by 1972, Disney had aged into a venerable institution, which helped to confer on all of its products of the past a new aura. They were now unimpeachable classics. This happened in spite of the 1968 publication of Richard Schickel's book, The Disney Version, which took Walt to task for the insidious, anti-progressive messaging of his movies. In his book, Schickel refrained from a full takedown of Song of the South. He branded it as sickening, but apparently felt like he didn't need to devote valuable literary real estate to belaboring the obvious criticisms about it. The thing was, within a couple of years, those criticisms were no longer obvious. In 1970, in what one historian describes as a trial balloon to test public feeling about Song of the South, Disney fed a story to Variety about the studio's decision to keep the movie in the vault, despite the fact that 
According to Disney's Chicago office, they received requests weekly from theater owners looking to borrow prints. Variety quoted an art house theater manager in Chicago who had attempted to rent a print of Song of the South and learned that the film was not available for loanout because, as the reporter Ron Wise put it, there is simply no editing out the built-in racial condescension of that day when it was created. As Wise concluded, Disney felt it was smarter in the long run to leave this money on the table because, quote, the Negro population of America looms disproportionately large in percentage as the dependable adult box office support of picks. This was true. By 1968, Variety estimated that African Americans constituted 30% of moviegoers, and possibly more in cities that were experiencing what was known as white flight. In essence, richer whites started moving out of urban areas to suburbs, where they could have more space and less diversity. And in certain cities, the downtown areas, where most of the biggest movie houses still stood, became primarily patronized by non-whites. As we'll see, Hollywood soon began maneuvering to take advantage of the fact that black people went to the movies in higher percentages than white people. But first, Disney decided that the time was once again right for Song of the South. The film was re-released in early 1972, and right away, the trade papers trumpeted its remarkable box office success. On February 23rd, Variety ran a story with the headline, Whites Like South Pick, But Do Blacks? Noting that the film was shelved in 1956, quote, when its racial implications were wrapped as white condescension by blacks, the magazine implied that this was no longer a matter of concern. The manager of a theater where it opened in Atlanta told Variety that South, quote, grossed more money the first week than any other picture in any week at regular prices. He said the audiences had been, quote, overwhelmingly white. The piece did not attempt to answer the question about black audiences posed in the headline. By March 1972, both Variety and the L.A. Times were reporting that South was set to gross $7 million in this reissue alone, making it the most successful Disney reissue in history to that point. This was remarkable because the movie had only grossed $5.4 million across its previous two releases. Success has a lot of fathers— and even Gene Siskel, writing in the Chicago Tribune, took credit for talking Disney into the reissue. Now Disney denied that they had ever shelved the movie, while also claiming that they only re-released it due to popular demand. This was a way of erasing decades of protest surrounding Song of the South by pointing to the present-day public's interest in seeing it as confirmation that there was nothing ever wrong with it, after all. Why was Song of the South such a bigger hit in 1972 than it had been in 1946? 
Song of the South had not, as some had feared, set back the progress of civil rights in 1946. As just one example, Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers integrated baseball the following year. But white viewers in 1972 may have hoped the film would have that effect. At the very least, the film was an escape into a world in which there had been no civil rights movement at all. Nostalgia is a common response to fear of change, and progressive leaps forward are typically followed by reactionary retreats backwards. Many would argue that we're living in such a time of retreat right now, in 2019. To white audiences who felt that African Americans were asking for too much progress, too much change, to whites who, like many Southerners after the Civil War, believed blacks could only advance by taking something away from whites, Song of the South was a pleasant retreat into an imagined past in which people of color knew their place, which was subordinate to whites. As we've discussed, much of the subtext of the movie involves the Black characters, both real life and the cartoon caricatures, learning to appreciate that the plantation is where they belong. Many white viewers, consciously or otherwise, may have longed for a return to a period in which their own place of power wasn't in question. In other words, in 1972, Song of the South was the perfect film to meet what film historian Ed Guerrero has described as the, quote, large, conservative white audience's desire to, at least on screen, suppress the Black revolt in all of its manifestations. The re-release entered a marketplace that was in the midst of a budding tug-of-war between two audiences, white people who longed for a return to what they perceived as the order of the past, and Black audiences inspired by the idea of seeing versions of themselves on screen as Haydn superheroes. One of the highest-grossing movies of 1971 had been Dirty Harry, starring Clint Eastwood as a San Francisco cop who is casually sexist and racist and will go to any length to clean up the streets, up to and including police brutality and other violations of a suspect's civil rights. Roger Ebert called Dirty Harry fascist. He also gave it three out of four stars. Dirty Harry reflected some of white America's fear that urban spaces had been taken away from them by so-called criminals and dramatized their latent desires to take those spaces back through violence of their own. The movie inspired four sequels and set off a wave of white male vigilante films, such as Walking Tall and Death Wish. These movies arose to meet the distaste of white Americans who looked at uprisings such as the Watts riots and, largely indifferent or even hostile to the frustrations and desires of the largely non-white uprisers, 
saw only crime and chaos. This is not unlike contemporary white people who argue that Black Lives Matter is a terrorist cause. Even whites who may have been sympathetic to some of the issues at stake in the 60s and 70s may have had that sympathy overwhelmed by their fear of loss of their own property and control over spaces they historically had to themselves. This would be equivalent to people today who argue that all lives matter. Death Wish and Dirty Harry were fantasies of the present and hoped-for near future for white people, just as Song of the South was a fantasy of the past, and just as Green Book is a fantasy of the past. In an essay about Sidney Poitier published in 1968, James Baldwin cited one of the key problems of the then-current cinema. Quote, White Americans appear to be under the compulsion to dream, whereas Black Americans were under the compulsion to awaken. This desire to awaken created an audience for what came to be called Blacksploitation. Blacksploitation was so named because it was part of a wave of exploitation films, which sought to exploit a loosening of censorship restrictions on things like sex and violence. The old Hayes Code, which had effectively censored all Hollywood films from the 1930s on, had broken down during the 1960s, and the new ratings board established in 1968 allowed for some leniency, particularly in films that were not marketed as family-friendly. The most restrictive rating was the adults-only X rating, which was not the kiss of death that the NC-17 would become. For a while, commercial movie houses were happy to book X-rated movies in the interest of luring back customers who had become accustomed to staying home and watching television instead of going to the theater. Explicit sex and violence in the late 1960s and 1970s was not something you could see on television. Not all black exploitation films were rated X, but most pushed the envelope in terms of artistic sexuality and baroque violence. They were marketed to teenagers and young adults living in metropolitan areas like Chicago and Atlanta, as well as older black adults and those who lived on the outskirts of cities, who, with the right enticements, would go downtown for a Saturday night out. The genre essentially began in 1971 with the release of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. This was an independent movie, written, directed, produced by, and starring Melvin Van Peebles, who financed it through non-traditional sources, including $100,000 of his own money and $50,000 borrowed from Bill Cosby. The movie, about the star stud of a sex show who becomes a vigilante superhero, became a surprise crossover hit, grossing 20 times its budget by the end of the year. Unquestionably, in a year in which the porn film Behind the Green Door reached the top five of all film grosses for the year, Sweet Sweetback's X rating was a commercial draw. 
Sweetback sets the template for what black exploitation would become in following the triumphant adventures of a black man who takes on white authority. The fact that the black hero ultimately escaped the white police was groundbreaking at the time, while also glorifying his beyond stereotypical sexual prowess, to the extent of celebrating the character's backstory of having been raped as a child by an older woman as evidence of his studliness. All of this seemed problematic to some viewers, even in 1971. So while Sweetback was being celebrated by the Black Panthers as the first truly revolutionary Black film, Ebony magazine forcefully argued the opposite, proclaiming that Sweetback was anti-revolutionary, in part because it existed in a sexual fantasy world. It is necessary to say frankly that nobody ever fucked his way to freedom, Ebony's Leroy Bennett wrote. It is mischievous and reactionary, finally, for anyone to suggest to Black people in 1971 that they are going to be able to screw their way across the Red Sea. If fucking freed, Black people would have celebrated the millennium 400 years ago. This kind of public controversy served as better publicity than most studios could dream of buying. The Sweetback phenomenon inspired Hollywood to make movies in this mold, specifically appealing to Black audiences by playing on their latent desires to cheer on Black men as they sought vengeance against their white oppressors. Melvin Van Peebles believed that Hollywood had turned what he had done with Sweetback into caricature and suppressed the political message, and thus, black exploitation was born. The first major Hollywood-produced black exploitation hit was Shaft, directed by Gordon Parks and starring Richard Roundtree as a private detective who presented a kind of black James Bond style of cool. Almost as low-budget as Sweetback, Shaft grossed even more. But this time, the money went into the coffers of MGM, not the pockets of a black creator aligned with the Black Panthers. Shaft was certainly more mainstream in its presentation of apolitical black power and charisma, and in its positioning of Shaft as a rugged individual who worked with white cops while also refusing to stand in solidarity with either gangsters or militants, it made it easier for white audiences to watch it without feeling personally attacked. A much more controversial and over-the-top entry in the genre was directed a year later by Parks's son, Gordon Parks Jr. Released six months after Song of the South's blockbuster 1972 revival, Superfly starred Ron O'Neill as Priest, a drug dealer looking for one last score before getting out of the life for good. Superfly was credited with popularizing gold Coke spoon necklaces, and by extension, cocaine itself, amongst black youths. I read about Superfly before I ever saw it, and when I did see it, I was surprised by how downbeat, moody, and quasi-verite it is, especially for its first 30 minutes or so. Priest's disaffection is taken seriously, as is the notion that drug dealing is the only access to wealth that white people are happy to leave to black people. 
Curtis Mayfield, who wrote iconic music for Superfly that added elegiac sweep to its otherwise low-budget aesthetic and performed in the movie wearing an even more iconic cardigan sweater, argued that the movie didn't inspire drug use, but reflected the way life really was in the inner cities. The way you clean up the film, Mayfield said, is by cleaning up the streets. On the whole, these movies promoted individual pleasures and triumphs over collective justice. There were exceptions, such as in Foxy Brown, starring Pam Greer, in which Foxy's brother, who is in trouble with white drug dealers, explains why he got into the selfish pursuit of coke dealing in the first place. Foxy, look, I'm a black man, and I don't know how to sing, and I don't know how to dance, and I don't know how to preach to no congregation. I'm too small to be a football hero, and I'm too ugly to be elected mayor. But I watch TV. And I see all them people in all them fine homes they live in and all them nice cars they drive. And I get all full of ambition. And you tell me what I'm supposed to do with all this ambition I got. Later, Foxy seeks help from her neighborhood chapter of Black militant activists who are wary of aiding a personal revenge gambit. She explains that her fight to avenge her brother is really a fight for all black people. What is it you really want? Justice. For whom, your brother? Why not? It could be your brother, too. Or your sister. Or your children. I want justice for all of them. And I want justice for all the other people whose lives are bought and sold so that a few big shots can climb up on their backs and laugh at the law and laugh at human decency. On the one hand, it was revolutionary to have these social problems be the subject of a Hollywood movie. On the other hand, this specific movie was written and directed by a white man, Jack Hill, and speeches like this feel as though they are scripted for white audiences, rather than black audiences, who don't need to be told these things in that kind of expository language. Foxy Brown proved that a movie could have ample nudity, spectacular and ridiculous action, and a plot resolution involving a white man's severed penis in a jar while still having something resembling a social conscience. However, with Superfly as the exemplar hit of the black exploitation wave, some critics began to note, to quote Ed Guerrero, Hollywood's insistence on stunting the development of a black political voice and emancipated consciousness in its black exploitation movies. Around the time of its release, Jesse Jackson, citing the vulgarity, violence, and vanity of the genre, threatened a boycott of Hollywood movies over such exploitative imagery. He argued that Black audiences received the movies as escapism, whether they realized it or not, and were not moved to act once they left the theater. And maybe feel a little more powerful, but they are not actually any more powerful because they have not turned the groove into an organism. If white film executives had been pushing black exploitation for nefarious ideological purposes alone, maybe it would have lasted longer. 
but it seems like the wave was purely economically motivated. And based on economics alone, there was only a brief window in which it could flourish. 1972 was a watershed and frankly bizarre year for movies. In addition to Behind the Green Door, another of the highest-grossing movies was Fritz the Cat, an adults-only animated feature directed by Ralph Bakshi, who we'll talk about more in a minute. Superfly made $20 million in its first seven months of release, which was just enough to edge out Jeremiah Johnson at the bottom of the year's top 10. But it was small potatoes compared to the $134 million brought in by the year's biggest hit, The Godfather. Similarly, none of even the biggest of the exploitation hits grossed as much as the reactionary films made for white audiences, such as Dirty Harry. For several years, Hollywood managed to both exploit Black audiences' desires to go to the movies and see people who looked like them triumph, while also making films that played to white audiences' desires to seize control of a world they had once dominated and felt they no longer did. Hollywood adopted this split racial personality in which two radically different versions of socially relevant escapism were being presented to two racially different audiences because it was profitable. But by the late 70s, the studios realized they could make more money through escapism that made no attempt to specifically appeal to Black audiences. Essentially, they learned that Black people wanted to see Jaws and Star Wars anyway, despite the fact that there were virtually no people who looked like them in these movies. In other words, Hollywood reverted to its pre-1960s way of doing business, understanding that they didn't have to pretend to care about anyone but the white median because everyone else would buy their products anyway. Black exploitation proved to be good business while it lasted, but Hollywood never saw those films as anything but B-movies, never spent A-level budgets on them, and never allowed them to transcend niche business. While the black exploitation wave was winding down, the final nail in its coffin may have been provided by a film which was intended as a progressive polemic against the aspects of black exploitation that served up black stereotypes for the profit of white film executives, using characters inspired by those in Song of the South. Its intentions were good, but the outcome was not. In 1972 and 1973, artist Ralph Bakshi made two hit animated feature films for adults, the aforementioned Fritz the Cat and Heavy Traffic. He began developing a project which he initially called Harlem Nights, which used as its starting point the Uncle Remus stories that had served as the basis for Song of the South. Instead of a tribute to Joel Chandler Harris's whitewashed portraits of plantation life, Bakshi, who was a white guy from Brooklyn, wanted to critique racist stereotypes, as well as black exploitation tropes, by depicting them at their most extreme. As this project developed, Bakshi added the white mafia, recently glorified by The Godfather, 
as a target for criticism. Like The Godfather, Coonskin, as this movie came to be called, was produced by Albert S. Ruddy. The film combined animated sequences about a rabbit, fox, and bear into a live-action framing story, both starring the Black actors Philip Michael Hall, who would soon star on Miami Vice, Charles Gordon, Scatman Carruthers, and singer Barry White. The animated story features the rabbit, bear, and fox traveling from the south to Harlem, where their blaxploitation-esque adventures include setting a trap for the white mafia using a tar baby. I found Coonskin to be extremely disorienting to watch. Part of this is because its mashup of cartoon and live action is visually stunning. Like Song of the South, it's technologically groundbreaking, but it feels like it has more in common with the French New Wave or American experimental art film than Disney. This is exciting, but it also means a viewer has to work a lot harder to unpack Coonskin's intellectual aims. It's very far from the straightforward parody of the SNL Disney Vault sketch. Watching the movie in 2019, I wasn't always able to pinpoint exactly what Bakshi was referencing in the culture of the 1970s in order to lampoon it. And thus, I wasn't always clear on what commentary he was trying to make. Viewers were confused in the 1970s, too. Coonskin was deliberately controversial and even off-putting. Bakshi wanted to offend and thus start a conversation about the elements of mainstream culture, like the history and then-present-day vestiges of minstrelsy and the romanticization of killers, that should be considered offensive, but weren't discussed as such. But audiences, critics, and activists of 1974 and 1975 were not ready for that conversation on the terms that Bakshi set. First unveiled two years after Song of the South's blockbuster return, and two years after the marketplace had given an even wider embrace to Bakshi's sexually explicit Fritz the Cat, Coonskin was almost protested out of existence. The movie, which was scheduled for distribution by Paramount, the same studio that had made The Godfather, had an early screening at no less a hollowed venue than the Museum of Modern Art in New York. After that screening, during a Q&A, Coonskin was attacked by members of the Congress of Racial Equality, which took offense at the racial caricatures which Coonskin perpetuated. It depicts Blacks as slaves, hustlers, and whores, said core member Elaine Green, who added, It is a racist film to me, and very insulting. Bakshi's critique of the Black hustler as the central figure of exploitation was lost on Coonskin's critics, and Paramount got nervous and dropped the movie in advance of their planned release. In 1975, an exploitation distributor then bought the release rights, which did not help the X-rated cartoon's attempt to be taken seriously as a work of social commentary. 
Corps continued to protest the film's makers and distributor. The NAACP disagreed, with Hollywood representative stuntman Eddie Smith describing Coonskin as very good and not a put-down of blacks. The New York Times also defended the film, with white critic Stephen Farber calling Bakshi a satirist who has little patience for fools or frauds of any color. And his film as a whole struck me as an attack on white racism and a very sympathetic call for black revolution. But at a time when Hollywood was becoming steadily more conservative in its output, many critics rolled their eyes at Coonskin for trying too hard to be controversial. In short, when it was dropped by its mainstream distributor, received dismissive reviews, and failed to start a productive conversation about race and racial stereotypes in Hollywood movies, Bakshi's good intentions backfired. Now it was easy to mark Coonskin as the offensive work of racial provocation and defend Song of the South's so-called innocence in contrast. This was a new twist for Song of the South. Though obviously, by the early 1970s, there was more than one generation capable of whitewashing the film through nostalgia. Never before had there been such a bounce board that allowed for the argument that Song of the South was innocent by comparison. It allowed white fans of Song of the South to avoid thinking critically about the movie, a privilege which, as we'll see next week, extended through the next decade and longer, past the point when Disney decided that Song of the South could be more profitable if they ceased to release the movie itself at all. Join us for that discussion in our final episode of this season next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was edited by Andy Christens. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include lists of all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. You can also support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth. You can subscribe on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And here's some big news. After five years of You Must Remember This, we're finally selling merch. Go to podswag.com slash remember now to find You Must Remember This t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs. 
all of which are perfect for holiday season gifts. We'll be adding more items to the store in the future, including signed copies of my books. That's podswag.com slash remember. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Stitcher.